Mark your calendars! The ADCES 24 Annual Conference parades into New Orleans August 9-12, through 12, 2024. Registration opens March 26, but you can start planning your trip now. Get ready to seize opportunities to connect, learn, and optimize your diabetes care and education practice. Stay tuned for updates at ADCES24.org. Hello, and welcome to ADCES's podcast, The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. In each episode, we speak with guests from across the diabetes care space to bring you perspectives, issues, and updates that elevate your role, inform your practice, and ignite your passion. I'm Kirsten Yale, Research Manager at the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists. If you enjoy The Huddle, please take a minute to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Over several episodes, we're discussing the value you provide as a diabetes care and education specialist and how you can leverage that value to promote your role. You can access a new toolkit and paper at diabeteseducator.org forward slash value toolkit. In this episode, we're talking about the value you provide in reducing therapeutic inertia. Andrew Zawicki and Shannon Knapp join us to discuss how they have leveraged their work with stakeholders to impact this growing problem. Andrew and Shannon, welcome to the huddle. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Well, we are so happy to have you on, especially since we're talking about therapeutic inertia, which has really become this hot topic these days. And, you know, I sometimes think on the surface, this seems so simple. You know what I mean? Just like remove the inertia and put the therapy in motion. But when you peel back the layers, it's really not that easy. And I've especially learned this by, you know, going to talks that you guys have given, you know, both on your own and then together. So that's why we're so excited to have you here to really talk through this therapeutic inertia topic. But before we get started, I would love for you guys to maybe introduce yourselves and talk about, you know, your experience with therapeutic inertia and what you've seen in practice. Absolutely. So my name is Andrew Zawicki. I'm a pharmacist and a certified diabetes care and education specialist. And I've been practicing mostly in the primary care setting. And therapeutic inertia is almost, it's funny that you mentioned it's, it's this big topic and yet very simple. It's, it's essentially kind of, I don't know, my role. I feel like the folks that I work with are the patients that everyone kind of throws their hands up and is trying to figure out, you know, how can we help this person? What can we do for them? And it seems like that tends to be the person that I'm directly connected with and trying to figure out what makes them tick and help them kind of move forward with their goals. So the more I've learned about therapeutic inertia, the more I've realized this has really been a focus of my practice, you know, for quite a while. Not that I'm the expert in it, but it's certainly been a central role in kind of how I practice personally. And I am Shannon Knapp. I am the manager of diabetes education at Cleveland Clinic. My background is nursing, so I am a registered nurse. And when I was functioning as a diabetes care and education specialist prior to being in management, I worked in the inpatient and the outpatient and the home care settings. So I kind of have this perspective of I see the organizational aspects of therapeutic inertia right now, but I also see it from the perspective of a diabetes care and education specialist. And in addition to that, I also have type 1 myself. So I come to it, although our focus on this project is patients who have type 2, I do come to this from the perspective of a patient as well who's living with diabetes. So you guys bring this really broad perspective. And honestly, just from knowing you and listening to you, 
I know you guys are problem solvers. I would say the ultimate problem solvers. So I'd love to hear, you know, before we kind of really dive deeply into this topic, what exactly is therapeutic inertia and this concept? And maybe why is it important to our listeners? Yeah. So Shannon and I have been working with a large kind of group headed by the American Diabetes Association, but co-sponsored by multiple professional and patient advocacy organizations. And there's, if you go into the literature, there's not a lot of definitions, but there's enough to have some variation. And so we've been focusing on a lack of timely adjustment to therapy when a patient's treatment goals are not met. And so in diabetes care, that could be slow to add, slow to change the care plan, slow to add medications or therapies uh, if a patient's A1C is too high. And then I think one of the other pieces to consider is therapeutic inertia could also be the failure to deprescribe. So, you know, as folks get older or as complications develop and the A1C goals may need to be a little bit relaxed, kind of taking those steps backwards to, again, get the patient the care that they need or would need at a certain time. And so that's really the, the definition we've been operating under. You know, I would add to what Andrew just said, too. There was a meta-analysis that came out uh, recently about therapeutic inertia. And one of the points that they made in there is that if you think about the changes that have happened over time, you would assume that there have been improvements in patient care and outcomes. But if we consider what have been the new treatments, I mean, think about how rapidly diabetes has evolved over the last several years. So since 2005, there have been 40 new treatment options. However, between the years of 1999 and 2014, really the percentage of patients who still maintain an A1C that is over nine has increased. And it does not seem to align, unfortunately. So the treatment options are increasing, and yet we're still not seeing the health outcomes that we'd like to see. Is that what you're saying? Right, absolutely. So what would be those barriers? I think that there are lots of barriers, and I think all of these barriers contribute to the therapeutic inertia. So barriers might be that people don't have, and when I say people, I mean both patients and providers, they aren't familiar with what resources are available to them. Do they realize that diabetes care and education specialists are out there, or do they have access to them in their area? Do they know how to access DCESs who are not in their area? Do they know how to access them virtually for their patients? Patients get pretty overwhelmed too. I think there's a patient side to this as well. There's so much information out there for patients. And so is them getting overwhelmed contributing to this kind of stagnation in the process? So thinking about the diabetes care and education specialist and where they work, so they're at the center of the care model, would you consider them, the DCES, a solution to this problem? I really do think that, you know, the meta-analysis that I mentioned, it highlighted that. It pointed to the fact that a lot of the research that's been out there already shows that the DCES is really, really important to this process. And it's not necessarily provider-centered interventions that have the biggest impact on glycemic outcomes. It is non-provider interventions. So things that involve a DCES, a nurse, a pharmacist. So absolutely, a DCES is central to this. 
Yeah, I think it's important to emphasize, um, I think you asked for the solution. And, and so I'm not sure personally if DCES is the solution, um, but certainly a solution. And one of the pieces that I often think about is, oh gosh, it's something like 5% of recently diagnosed patients with diabetes who are on Medicare, which DSMES is covered as a, as a covered benefit, but only 5% or less actually kind of take on that benefit and, and use it. And so how many people are missing out either because of lack of access or lack of awareness or this perception of need. And so um, there's so much in that to just kind of connect to people and, and offer to help them and then let them know that they have the service available to them. I think it's critical. What I think is really phenomenal is that you guys partner together. Shannon, you're a nurse. Andrew, you're a pharmacist. You both come from these varying perspectives. What does this look like in practice? Like, what can the DCES do in practice? I mean, do you have any stories from your experience that you can share? The first thing that needs to happen is we need to get to the patient. So we know how beneficial we are. We know that the services of a DCES can have such an impact on patient care and patient outcomes. And so that's the critical piece is how do we get to the patient's? Because if we can't get to them, our services do not really, they're not going to help. They're not going to contribute to the solution of the problem. So collaboration, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, Andrew is a pharmacist, me as a nurse, dietitians, physical therapists, all of us contribute to this. Care coordinators, case managers, we can attack the problem from different angles. And so I think that it's really crucial for us to even be aware of who else is out there and who else is on the team. I think that's really important because I don't believe that any of us can do this independently, either just like a primary care physician who's managing diabetes cannot do it by themselves either. Exactly. I think of, um, so I had previously been practicing in a large academic medical center and thinking about kind of when I joined, uh, we had an accredited DSME program. I knew nothing about DSMES at the time. I was a new practitioner, didn't have my, my CDE credential yet. And it just was very overwhelming to kind of figure out, you know, how could I help and what could I do differently? And even um, the rest of the team, it was, uh, we had a team of nurses, we had a dietitian, a social worker, um, and a behavioral health clinician. And here I was as pharmacist, and there was this perception of, well, you know, the nurses do insulin adjustments, and we teach this program without you, you know, what's different, what's new? Um, and really kind of walking in and just taking that approach of, you know, we're all here to help the patient. We're all here to kind of do what's best. There is overlap within our scopes and, and that's okay. Uh, it comes back to, we had to really kind of work through how did we all contribute to that team? Kind of who was the best person to be referred to us, um, whether it be the dietitian, the nurse or the pharmacist. And then if that referral didn't happen, if we had to kind of triage between us, that was completely all right too. Um, but then I also want to mention that oh gosh, we had over time reached out to cardiac rehab because we tend to share a lot of patients. And so they were educating on, on diabetes-related things that was maybe inconsistent with what we were educating on. And so trying to get our talking points and counseling points in line. And then we you know, had our inpatient educator. And so integrating everyone to make sure that we were all kind of eyes and ears on the ground looking for these patients and kind of triaging them um, as best as possible. The team just grows and grows depending on how far out you go. But you got to start somewhere, I think. And you guys both work in integrated healthcare systems, right? I mean, do you have any experience or do you know diabetes care and education specialists that work in the standalone practice and how they can attack therapeutic inertia? 
You know, one of the things we have at my hospital system, we have, although it's a large hospital system, it is made up of quite a few smaller offices. So although maybe at our main campus, we have several diabetes educators and uh, more access to those services, there are other offices that function on a much smaller capacity. So they may have just one or two providers in them. And, you know, they might have access to a DCES, but maybe it's only one day a week, if that. We also have offices where there really is no support, but we reach out to them and we talk to them about, here's how you can access our services because they still need the help too, but we can't be everywhere. I mean, there are not enough of us across the country to go around. So reaching out to those provider offices really, really helps to let them know what the resources are and how to get you. Yeah, currently I'm in an integrated health system. And so um, very large health, well, not very large, moderately sized across the, the metropolitan area. But unfortunately, a lot of our official kind of DSMES services are across the city. And so where my clinic is at, I practice in, it's a small four physician, very small office. A lot of the patients come from our local area and don't necessarily want to drive um, all the way across the city. So that location is a barrier. And so try to provide as many services um, as possible from an education perspective to patients individually. But for the small offices, one thing that I'm really thinking about in those that have kind of their own service from a diabetes education service, um, really knowing, really being in tune with your referral sources, with those clinics that you are working with, those private physician offices that you are working with. And I'm sure everyone's aware of MIPS, but the merit-based incentive payment system through Medicare, really being in line with those as our system continues to move towards quality over quantity, these values, these A1C numbers, these metrics become so much more important. And so being able to market your service and, and show two birds with one stone, you know, you've got these metrics that need to be met. You have this service you can provide to help people, you know, improve their overall life period with diabetes. And then on top of that, you know, you're, you're tackling that therapeutic inertia for that clinician or that provider that um, may not have the time to do that in their individual appointments. So really trying to kind of frame your messaging can be critical in knowing what's in store for those uh, referral sources that you're working with. And so it sounds like whether you're in a small office or, or a system, it's that whole idea of communication. And like you said, even Andrew, I love, I love hearing when people say this on the show, the marketing piece, because there is a little bit of marketing and letting people know what the DCES can do and that the DCES, as you as a DCES, understands the reimbursement process. But getting back too to what Shannon was saying is, I think in both systems, small and large, it's reaching that person with diabetes. And I'm Wondering if you guys can talk a little bit about how can the DCES directly help their patients reduce therapeutic inertia? It's so simple and complex at the same time, right? So anything <laughs> helps, right, to move, move steps forward. But on the other hand, sometimes you just, you feel so stuck. And what I really love about kind of the DCES practice model or this idea is, is you really, you're there and you're listening to the patient and you're in tune and you're really kind of trying to connect to what the patient is saying so that you can help that person get to the next step or get to, you know, whatever their goal. So it's goal setting and, and measuring progress on those goals and all of those pieces. So one of the, the first things that I talked a lot about um, when I work with students or when I'm kind of talking with others about kind of my practice 
is I think in that that first visit, one thing I hear a lot from providers and I hear a lot from other folks is how are we supposed to get all of these standards and all of these screenings and all of these things? How are we supposed to get all of this done? You know, the ADA wants us to do these and their standards of care. Like, how is this possible? And really, I think there's a lot that can be done in the first visit, but a lot of it is really just kind of like fact finding and verification. So I think of my first visit with a patient almost like a first date in a way, um, not a romantic thing, but just working on building that relationship. You know, I don't know who they are. I read the chart, but that doesn't mean I know who they are. The chart's always one perspective. You know, they find out who I am. You know, they've worked with providers in the past. They may have worked with a diabetes educator in the past, and it may not have been a positive experience. It may have been a, a, a very positive experience. I don't know. And so we're really kind of feeling each other out. What is your style? What's my style? How do we kind of connect? Do we connect? And then what works from there? And I think from that first visit, I mean, I have had visits where, you know, patient refuses injections, patient refuses insulin, patient's just very difficult, the favorite word, the quote unquote difficult. And, you know, I'm walking into the visit thinking like, oh my gosh, this is going to be a nightmare. And just wiping that away, walking in the room, you know, trying to kind of approach it with a clean slate. Who knows what can happen? I've had very, um, not always, but lots of success with, you know, oh, you know, you were refusing insulin, but really you just didn't understand what insulin was, or um, people think that insulin means you have to start injecting like seven times a day right off the bat, um, as opposed to like a daily basal insulin. Just um, misconceptions are abundant in diabetes. And so really trying to kind of figure that out on the first visit. And then in my notes, I'm kind of identifying, okay, you know, next steps, that statin, that aspirin, that foot exam, that flu shot, you know, kind of lining those up. These are the other things I want to get to eventually, but you don't have to do everything at every visit is one thing that I've learned over time. I completely agree, Andrew. And I think that sometimes we see the DSME assessment as just a box to check. And so we're trying to get through it so that we can get to the teaching. But I really, really believe that the assessment is a crucial part of understanding that patient and understanding what their needs are, not just what the provider may be ordered in the uh, referral to uh, DSME. So the provider might think that they just need to learn carb counting. But when we meet with that patient and we work on our assessment with them and, and learn about them, we might figure out that's not their biggest concern. And so I believe that the assessment really can drive our relationship with the patient and it can drive our understanding of what their needs are. And it is very critical. And so if it takes up a large part of the first visit, that's okay. And if we don't get through everything like you talked about, that's okay too. We're starting the relationship. We're not starting and finishing it at the first visit. So I love this conversation and what I'm hearing from you guys. So your relationship or the diabetes care and education specialist relationship with the people that they see or the individuals they see, it's not a one-way communication style. It's really developing this collaborative relationship. And when I listen to that, it sounds like a very empowering relationship. How can our listeners leverage their value to reduce therapeutic inertia in practice? One of the things that we did, because again, we're talking about individualizing care. And I think a challenge for every DCES is, again, we're trying to check boxes and not just in the assessment, but also in the education that's provided. And so we're trying to cover all of these topics. But 
you know, it's a little easier to do in the individual setting because in the individual setting, we can really tailor it to what that individual needs. It's a little easier to do than in the group setting. So I think group is a little bit more of a challenge and it's where we do a lot of our work. So how do we tailor stuff in the group setting? One of the things that we did at a few of the locations in our organization, we were providing didactic classes for quite some time. You know, we've got the PowerPoint slides and we go through them. And these are the topics that we cover for anyone who comes to our group classes. And we reevaluated that at some of the locations. We looked at our population. We looked at what their needs were. And we figured out that, you know, in order to tailor it to them, we did not have to check all those boxes. We needed to find out what they wanted to talk about, even in the group class. And so it became, number one, rather than being a four-session class, which is kind of one of the gold standards for many years of providing comprehensive DSME classes, rather than doing that, we found at one of our locations, most of the people with diabetes who were attending our classes were in their 50s. That was our median age. And so when we assessed the population and found that out, we figured out they don't have time to come to four classes. They don't want to pay for parking. They um, have other family and personal commitments. And so we changed it to a one session class that was about two to three hours. And within that class, rather than trying to provide all this information in a really quick fashion, we created a quote unquote parking lot at the beginning of the class. What do you all want to talk about today? What are your main concerns? What are the challenges you're facing in your diabetes care? Where are the bright spots? Where are the things that you have more issues with? And so each class became much, much more patient-driven. And so we were getting to the root of what they really, truly needed and wanted. And I think that I would encourage DCESs out there to not think that you have to cover a certain topic just because it's listed in a curriculum you want to cover what the patient needs. And that does not always include every single thing uh, that's in our curriculum. So our patient-facing pieces, you know, marketing to patients, promoting to patients, really kind of helping them understand the value, but then also our referral sources, so our providers and making sure that they understand and and connecting the piece. Um, And so the story I always share is with our referrals for our group, uh, specifically our group DSMES program. It just seemed like referrals were... Um, they ebbed and flowed, and I think that happens naturally, but we were noticing they were more kind of ebbing than flowing, if, if that's the, the bad one. Um, and so really kind of took a deep dive into trying to figure out, you know, what might be happening. And you have your physician champions, and they, they come to your advisory groups, and of course, you know, they think everything's fantastic, um, and yet something's still disconnecting somewhere. So one of the things that we did was we actually looked at our referral form, and it was very interesting to me because... A, just trying to find the referral form uh, was actually quite difficult. There were several different forms that were kind of conflicting. And so we'd always get upset if the wrong one was filled out or if something was filled out incorrectly and it just took more work down the road. And so one of my strengths and and flaws, honestly, is is systems-based thinking. So kind of go upstream what's happening and how do we resolve that? And so tried to fill the form out. And um, one of the things I always recommend people is try to fill it out and, and time yourself and see how long it takes you to fill that form out. Um, and then think about how many people with diabetes are within your system and then multiply that out and see how long it takes just to complete that form. So 
thinking of therapeutic inertia, one of the things is that lack of time, that lack of energy to really kind of move things forward. Don't make your referral form something that people dread. Uh, and so anything you can do to streamline that form, um, we had things like uh, what was the patient's most recent A1C on there? And it was a required field. So the providers had to fill that out to move on. You know, we had access to that information. We had that in the EMR. Or honestly, the EMR can auto-populate that into that form. There's no reason, you know, while someone's in the middle of a referral, they have to flip back to another screen, find that number, transfer it over, um, go through all of those steps. I think the other piece is, is there's a lot of rumors that spread, especially within a large system, but even in a smaller system. So um, you have one patient who there may have been a miscommunication with coverage or a copay or something. And that spreads like wildfire amongst the practice. And so all of a sudden, no one's referring because, you know, we had a rumor that um, patients who have Medicaid as their insurance source, you know, we're going to get charged, you know, hundreds of dollars for a diabetes education. So instantly, like we just saw this drop in referrals from patients who happen to have Medicaid. Uh, and so really had to deep dive and figure out like what happened. And again, it just takes one situation, one experience. No physician wants to send someone to something that's clearly unaffordable. So it's well-intentioned, but just wasn't based on the most accurate information. And so keeping your eyes and ears on the grounds is always critical to see what's happening amongst the, the provider, the referral groups. I agree, Andrew. You know, we had a couple barriers that we really, we wanted to identify ways to deal with these barriers. And one of them was that Referring providers said that one of the barriers they saw to getting patients to DSME was patient resistance. And then the other barrier we had was that when patients would see the provider, the provider sometimes, for whatever reason, maybe they just didn't have time. They, you know, their visits are short. And so they just did not have time to even think about placing a referral to diabetes care and education specialist. So what we did is we tried to make it as easy as possible. And whenever we now have a new patient visits scheduled with one of the endocrinologists in our system, and we have probably about 40 endocrinologists, I'm just guessing at that number, but it's somewhere around there. For all of those endos across the system, if a patient calls to schedule a new provider visit with a provider, they automatically then also get scheduled to see a DCES. And our schedules have exploded. We are seeing so many more patients than we used to, and it's exactly what we have always wanted. So I think that we try to take a more active stance on this rather than a passive stance, because we tried for a while, okay, we're going to promote our services, we're going to send flyers to the provider offices, we're going to give them things to hand out to the patients, we're going to remind them, we even had a location that sends Christmas cards every year to the providers that they work with. I think those things are all helpful, but they weren't getting the patients to us as much as we would like. We felt like we were spinning our wheels. And so using this more active Stand, taking this more active stance, we've been able to really see the patients that we need to see. Thank you both so much for joining us today. This was just an excellent conversation. And as always, I learned so much from you guys. And I would love it if you could come on again sometime soon. Absolutely. Um, always a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Huddle, Conversations with the Diabetes Care Team. 
Today, Andrew Zawicki and Shannon Knapp shared how to leverage your role to decrease therapeutic inertia. You are a critical solution to reducing therapeutic inertia, but to do that, you must promote your value. Be aware of who you can help within your care team and outside your circle of influence to gain access to new patients. Reach out to provider offices and let them know how you can help. Think about barriers to collaboration and what makes it difficult for your stakeholders. During consults, focus on individualized care and keep moving your patients forward. Utilize an assessment to find out what they really want, not just what the provider thinks is important. For more on what you can do to promote and expand your value in decreasing therapeutic inertia, check out a new toolkit with resources to help you grow. You can access the toolkit and paper at diabeteseducator.org forward slash value toolkit. Membership at ADCES gives you access to the education, networking, and resources to improve your practice and optimize outcomes for your clients. Find out what ADCES can do for you at diabeteseducator.org forward slash join. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and may not be appropriate or applicable for your individual circumstances. This podcast does not provide medical or professional advice and is not a substitute for consultation with a healthcare professional. Please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.